Hi, this is Steve Hargadon. It's Wednesday, July 28th. Welcome to the Future of Education. Our special guest tonight is Sam Sheltain. Sam, did I say your name right? You did. Oh, good. I, I think I've been butchering it all week as I've been announcing the event coming up. Sam, really, really glad to have you here tonight. The Future of Education is sponsored by my employer, Illuminate. You are an Illuminate session, which is why they let me do this. Uh, the project I work on for Illuminate is called Learn Central. It's a social network for educators that's free and has Illuminate built in, so we hope you'll come and visit. We have announced our Global Education Conference in November, November 15th and 19th. Five days, multiple time zones, multiple languages, multiple tracks, and free. We hope you'll come join us for that. Coming up on the Future of Education tomorrow, and Sam, I'm getting some noise from your mic, so I'm going to turn you off for just a second, and then I'll have you turn yourself back on when you're come back on. Uh, tomorrow night, Peggy Sheehy and Lucas Gillespie on World of Warcraft Learning with Teens. And next week, Milton Chen on his book, Education Nation. Charles Fidel, uh, the week after on Neuroscience of Learning. David Wood. Most of you are not going to know David Wood, but he wrote a book called Getting Paid for Who You Are that I think has pretty significant implications for uh, kind of individualized learning and student uh, personal branding. And it should be interesting to have a conversation with him. Carol Dweck on Mindset. Mind. The BYU-Idaho learning model coming up for the end of August from Anya Kamen's book, DIYU, which will be a lot of fun, and much more. So we hope you'll join us for those. If you've missed the session, do you do know that the recordings are up for future education to come, including last night's great session with Lawrence Peters on global education, uh, Jim Bach on self-education and passion, and many more. If this is your first time at Illuminate, it is a participative environment. Sam, I'm going to turn your mic off again because there's just a lot of noise, but we'll have you come back on in a second. We do want to encourage you to participate. There are emoticons at the bottom of the participant window. You can do a smiley face or a clapping hand. Um, when you leave a message in the chat, you can leave a message to another individual. You'll notice through the drop-down box, but do be aware that Sam and I both see those as moderators. We're going to give you a chance now to participate by letting us know where you're listening from. Look at the map. To the left of the map, you'll see a laser pointer, a wand with a red star at the end. If you click on that and click on the map, we'll know where you're listening from. And you can shout it out in the chat if you'd like. So North America-centric, looks like Peru again. Australia, Mexico, so glad to have all of you here on a summer night when many of you aren't in session, although in Peru my guess is that you are in school in Australia as well. For those in North America, thanks for taking the time out. Okay, so Sam, I, I'm going to tell you a short story. I, I read your book um, on a couple of flights, and I was at the end of about eight weeks of travel. I was enormously fatigued, and I couldn't stop taking notes. And I would take, you know, these impassionate notes for 15 or 20 minutes, and then I would nap. And then I would take these notes for 15 or 20 minutes, and then I would nap. And it, it went that way the whole day. And I'm, I'm not sure if it was the fatigue 
or the just sort of brilliance with which ideas were coming to me from the book that were causing the fatigue. But uh, it was a very interesting experience. And I've since reflected um, a lot on the book. It just won't leave me. So I need you to turn your mic back on. We can hear you. There you go. All right. So have other people responded the same way? Have, have, I, made, have I made other people fall asleep? <laughs> <laughs> you know what I mean. <laughs> I'm just kidding. Are you getting the kind of response you'd hope to the book? Um, yeah, it's an interesting question. I, I feel like when you, when you birth a, a book like this, in a way, your gift is just having it out there. So I wouldn't say that I had a lot of preconceived notions about what people should do with it, except obviously wanting them to find it useful and and uh, ways that maybe would connect them to new ideas and ways of seeing this work. But I haven't I haven't necessarily been overly eager to get really positive praise. Or I, I've said to folks like, whatever your feedback is, whether it's good, bad, or ugly, I'm just curious to hear because a book always represents a fixed moment in time. And so by nature, it's always imperfect. But uh, if there are any ways in which it's been useful to people, then I consider the project a success. Well, it's been profoundly useful to me. And, and I'll, I'll give you some feedback that's, that may be interesting to you. Uh, the book to me was divided really into two parts. The forward, the introduction, the prologue, and then the culture building. And for me, not being in a, in a school culture, it was the shortest portion of the book, the forward, the introduction, the prologue, that really captivated me. Whereas it was the longer part of the book for you, and I'm sure most of the work, was in the, the culture building. Uh, I'm not sure. Um, are you still there, by the way? I am still here. Okay, I just... Uh, seem to be a difference in the audio. Um, I don't know that I can choose uh, between them. The, the prologue was the one bit of the book that I wrote uh, to be able to serve as a standalone piece where somebody, if they didn't read anything else, could read the prologue and at least get a good sense of what to expect. Um, I will say that my favorite type of writing is the type that I did in the epilogue and in part two, the stories of the schools. Um, I think it was important to bring together all of the different theoretical ideas from the education, the business, and the scientific communities in part one. I mean, really what I was trying to do was create a bread trail for other people um, to see if there are some new connections that can be made. But really, going forward, the only type of writing that I want to do is writing that tries to capture the stories of people who are doing the work and struggling and succeeding and telling that story in a way that will hopefully let other people develop a fuller sense of what they need to do. Okay, so I'm going to quote from, uh, and I think you do a really good job in your blog, by the way, and, and, it, and we put the link up there to Sam's uh, webpage at the bottom, and that's a hot link. You can link to it, um, and I think I can actually put it back in the chat there. Um, but I think you do a really good job with the blog. I went to the Five Freedoms Project page, and uh, there was an interview with you there, and I'm going to read a couple of quotes. 
And these, to me, are very much at the heart of the value of the book. Um, uh, and so I want, I want to, I want, well, let me go ahead and read them. Uh, you say about democracy in schools, and I can hear you typing there, Sam, so I'm going to turn your mic off and just have you turn it back on when you respond. Um, you say, it means teachers stop being authoritarian while remaining authoritative. It means school climates become less controlling but more orderly. And it results in students who start to acquire not just book knowledge about democracy, but also a set of civic skills. Shared decision making, critical reasoning, effective advocacy, etc. These are essential to today's world. School leaders everywhere, even in this era of high stakes testing, must be encouraged and given the necessary public support to become true laboratories of democracy. I'm wondering how pervasive that viewpoint is, because my guess is that it's not pervasive. Do you have a sense that there's still a pretty big uphill climb there? Very much. Um, I would say I've been lucky in that since leaving the classroom about a decade ago, I've had the privilege of working with schools all across the country, K-12, public, public charter, private, and, and I've worked with some schools that were not even close to imagining an environment like this, and I've worked with a lot of schools that really aspired to create democratic learning communities, and what I've discovered is that it's very hard to do this work well. I see actually that one of the people on the call is uh, Kim Carter, who's founder of the best school that I've ever seen or had the privilege of working with in New Hampshire. And it was really from Kim that I started to see um, how difficult this work really is and how delicate the balance is between individual freedom and group structure. Uh, and that it's getting that balance right that makes or breaks the success of the school culture. And I don't know if anybody can hear it, but my dog is crying trying to get a toy. So I'm now going to try to multitask and get his bone so he'll shut up. <laughs> we couldn't hear it, but it's a reasonable thing to do. Yeah. Okay, so let me tell you my response to that. I, I read that, and that was what captivated me. And on, the, on my little notebook on the plane, I drew three columns. And I drew, uh, on the left-hand column was complete freedom, on the right-hand column was a complete control, and in the middle was, um, you know, representative democracy, uh, free market economy, um, you know, family councils. And it seems to me that the bigger story is that there's this uh, tension between freedom and control, and that it's in that middle zone where we really see the magnification of human potential. Is, is that a fair construct given uh, the, the, your, the message in your book? Very much so. Actually, my, my next book, which is coming out at the end of this year, is titled We Must Not Be Afraid to Be Free. And it's actually not an education book. It's a book about uh, the history of the First Amendment in this country, and it tells the story of our evolving understanding of freedom through, really through the career of Hugo Black. And so we must not be afraid to be free is a line from one of his Supreme Court opinions. And very briefly, not to get too into it, but you know, Black was a, was a former Ku Klux Klan member appointed by FDR, became the greatest champion of First Amendment freedoms perhaps in the history of the court. But then at the end of his life, which, uh, and the end of his term, which coincided with the 60s, he retreated, in part, I think, because of the fear that he had 
about the chaos that he saw in the streets. In a way, I think Black's own life trajectory gets at what you're talking about. It's hard to uh, create an environment that's trusting and well-structured enough to really allow people to the fullest extent possible to experiment with their own freedom and do so in a way that doesn't impinge upon the rights of others and actually maybe even, as you said, unleashes human potential. And so in a way, I think the biggest challenge that progressive educators have is getting that calibration right. And I would say more often than not, we don't get it right. Um, we maybe err on the side of too much freedom and abdicate our responsibility to be authoritative adults that help facilitate student learning and help them discover the power and uniqueness of their own voice rather than just hand over the keys to the kingdom and maybe give them a lot of freedom but in a way that results in not that much learning taking place. Boy, I just am so anxious to dive deep here because uh, Kirsten says, you know, unleashing human potential has not been what schooling's been about. And, and although you're talking about the fine tuning, I wonder, do we even actually think of schools as an environment that relates to freedom? I mean, in some ways, we've got the free market economy. We have what we call democracy or representative participative government. But I don't think most of us think of schools as an environment where freedom even plays much of a role. No, well, I think part of the problem is too often in this country, because we're known as you know, the world's first new nation, we're not, you're standing in the civic order, it's not determined by um, bloodlines and kinship, but by a shared allegiance to principles and ideals. And so in a way, I think that gets us feeling a little high on our horse, like we actually have this all figured out. Um, you know, I mean, we've seen it recently in our foreign policy that the, the idea that you can simply export democracy and if people hold up ink-stained fingers and you import some experts to draft a constitution, then your problems are solved. Um, we're actually only in the earliest stages of even understanding what democracy means. And so, and that's as a country, let alone as a community of adults trying to help children acquire the skills that they'll need to be successful. So that, really that's the primary motivation I had for writing this book because I felt like um, I had seen a lot of schools that had tried to do it and I hadn't seen many that had done it well and I had been given the, the space to really reflect on that and try to make some connections. And I was in business school at the time, you know, focusing on organizational behavior and not-for-profit management. So, so the, the riddle that I was trying to unpack is how can, how can somebody provide enough of a framework to help folks that aren't sure where to get started get started, but do so in a way that still leaves the breathing space for individuals and for communities to make the process of becoming a democratic learning community their own because the moment you suggest, um, you know, it's a five-step process and do these things and your problems are solved, you immediately lose sight of what a democratic learning community is about and how nonlinear that process is. So in a lot of ways, the books already preaching to the choir. Maybe the reason the, the introductory portions were so interesting to me was I was looking for the argument that schools should be democratic when what the book's really doing is it's saying if you're interested in a democratic environment, here are the skills that you can begin to implement that will help you get there. 
Yeah, actually, and I'd say that's an important point. There's um there's a, a a post I did, I don't know, in the last three weeks or so on my blog titled "To What Do We Owe Our Fidelity?" and the reason I wrote it is I'm a part of a founding group that's launching a new school here in D.C. and we'll open our doors in the fall of 2011. And when you're just starting a school from scratch, you, you really have an opportunity to think um, about the big questions. And one of the things that I thought of is, well, what's the primary thing that we owe our fidelity to? Well, I don't think it's democracy. And, and I think that's a mistake that we make. Uh, my primary interest is not to create democratic schools. Um, my interest, and I think all educators' interest, should be to create the healthiest, highest functioning learning environments possible. And everything flows backwards from that. How do, we, how do we create the optimal learning conditions for kids? Now the reality is if you start to unpack it, it's by creating an environment that's democratically oriented. But I don't think you begin with democracy. I think that's the mistake that people make because then your fidelity is to, is to processes and governance, not to learning. Whereas if your fidelity is to learning, then you're inevitably going to explore, well, what are the governance processes that we need to put in place that will best empower that? But I think the order is very important. Okay, so I'm going to push back and let me do so briefly and, and see how you respond. I interviewed John Taylor Gatto a couple of months ago and I was really struck by the degree to which his story about education, which was way extreme 20 years ago, is now much more mainstream. The idea that vacuum model school doesn't serve most students. But it seems to me that we need a story. We need some sense of, you know, we need something that makes sense of our lives. And I'm not convinced that if you said to people, we need to create an environment that's most conducive to learning or create opportunities for learning for students, that, that there would be agreement that that is actually lead you to a democratic environment. Well, actually related to this, um, and there's some of the folks that are listening and will soon be participating or are a part of this project, there's another um, book I'm a part of that's going to come out in February that's going to gather together stories of people across the country who were asked to reflect on their most powerful personal experience in a learning community. Um, the reason I bring it up is, first of all, the stories are really powerful, and I think it's going to be a book that folks find both inspiring and illustrative. And a lot of those stories are on uh, the website that, uh, that the campaign that gathered those stories um, hosts. It's rethinklearningnow.com. But, um, but this, what we, the reason we did it is we were trying to, to surface, okay, across hundreds of different human experiences that may or may not have occurred in school. So third grade, church group, outward bound. Um, what are the core conditions that always rise to the surface when people are asked to reflect on their most powerful learning experience? And so I agree with you that story is essential. And to me, that's the story. It's not when did you feel most alive in a democracy, although I imagine a lot of those would uncover the same conditions. But schools are primarily in the learning business. And the, the core conditions that rose to the surface, by the way, and the, the five subdivisions of the book are challenging, engaging, relevant, supportive, and experiential. Now the reality is I think you could take all of those and superimpose them onto the ideal characteristics of a democracy. Um, but again, I think the order is what matters. 
So very interesting. Okay, so um, Sandra Day O'Connor in the forward to the book uh, says that uh, you know schools should be teaching civic education, preparing people for the rights and responsibilities of democratic citizenship. Do you think that's broadly accepted? Uh, I, yes and no. I mean, I don't think you find too many people, although there are some, that argue with the essential role that public education plays in the ongoing health of our democracy. I mean, it's the only institution that's guaranteed to reach 90% of every succeeding generation that's governed by public authority and that was founded with the explicit mission of preparing young people to exercise their rights responsibly. Um, but, but in a way, that and a cup of coffee will get you a cup of coffee in this environment. You know, I mean, people will basically say, yeah, sure, um, and then they'll get back to the rather myopic conversations about how we will ultimately evaluate whether schools are successful uh, or unsuccessful, which, you know, is the equivalent of us looking for our keys in an empty parking lot but only searching where the, where the light is good. So, if you don't mind, would you take a couple of minutes and talk about your background? Because I think that your particular path to this place is uh, illustrative or illuminating, and especially your, you know, sincere desires related to the First Amendment and freedom. Could you repeat the question? Well, I just wanted you to kind of talk a little bit about the work that you've done, because it seems as though you, you, you come from this direction of the First Amendment and freedom and the Five Freedoms Project, and just wanted to give you a chance to kind of expound on that a little. Yeah, well, so like a lot of folks that know they want to be educators, when I left New York, I had been teaching for five years. I knew I wanted to be an educator my whole life. Um, I felt like I needed an experience outside the classroom, and I wasn't sure what that was going to be because the reality is there's really only one career path in education, which is uh, teacher, principal, superintendent, and that's just not a path that necessarily lots of folks want to feel, uh, want to want to follow. So without going too into it, I had some real serendipity that brought me to the First Amendment Center and under the leadership of Charles Haynes, who's the senior scholar there, I became much more aware of how the five freedoms of the First Amendment provide the foundation for how we all become seen and heard in meaningful and responsible ways. They are the tools for us utilizing our voice effectively in a democracy. And then with the First Amendment Schools Project, uh, frankly, at a time when I don't think I had enough of an understanding of the whole arc of learning and organizational change in school reform, but I certainly had passion and good intentions, we went about trying to use those five freedoms as a frame for how schools go about creating healthy learning environments. And so uh, I would say in brief, you know, my own path has been an ongoing journey to try to better understand how we do that well and what it requires of us and what the essential foundations of it are. So I'm curious about the word democracy because for many years I've sort of struggled to try and not say democracy when I actually meant a constitutional republic or I meant participative representative government. Do you worry at all about that term? Does it, does it have a connotation now that sort of culturally that, that doesn't mean pure democracy but that means something more? 
Well, um, the short version is I don't worry about it very much. And even as somebody that's been working on this all the time, I'm, when people draw the distinction between the democracy and the republic, it's like one of those things that I can just, I'm always like, oh right, what is the distinction actually? Um, but from my own perspective, I think the, the term that matters most to me is democracy lowercase d. Democracy as a way of imagining a society where people are able to work collaboratively to solve problems and um, create an environment where everybody does better because everybody does better. Uh, and as I said before, I think that's something that we haven't really figured out. I think one of the things that we're really seeing is the almost um, incompatibility of democracy and capitalism. Uh, and yet as we go forward, it's a, <clears throat> it's a balance we're going to have to continue to struggle to, to, um, to strike. Okay, so uh, you then talk in the introduction about, um, actually I'm going uh, to pull my notes here. So um, actually it's in the prologue and you talk about the one, if there was one thing that you could have our public schools achieve, it would be to help all young people acquire the skills and self-confidence they need to be visible in the world. So it seems like that's, uh, for me, kind of intimately tied now with the participative technologies of the web. Does that, do those stories combine for you? Um, yeah, I, I think so. I mean, I think that's, we're, we're, in this and in so many other respects at this moment in history, we're all a part of a great unfolding. Um, and, and so, so I think, I think in, at almost every level of um, society and how we interact, we're trying to we're trying to shake off the paradigms of the 20th century and figure out um, a better, more fuller way of being with each other. And so it's it's like what Joe and Lai said when he was asked about the what he thought about the French Revolution in the late 1970s, and he said it's too soon to tell. So Roger asked the question that I was going to kind of pass over from here of sidetracking us, but he says that you, you, he's drawing into the attention the fact you said that democracy and capitalism seem to be incompatible. Uh, um, it wasn't clear to me, but do you want to take a minute and tell us what you think, what you're thinking there? Could you say it again? I'm sorry. I'm like, it's, it's a bit of sensory overkill where I'm like trying <laughs> right. to both... So Roger says, uh, it draws, it draws attention to the fact that you said that you felt like democracy and capitalism, you were seeing them as, as incompatible. That, that would yeah. have occurred to me. I actually would have said that, that we're talking about sort of the same thing, free market economies, uh, participative governments, that these are, even, even with the bumps in history, that they're still parts of a larger story. Do you see them as being incompatible in some way? I'm not ready to say definitively that they're incompatible, but you know my own understanding of what the founders were trying to get at, and if we just think about the First Amendment for an, and I, you know the, the ideas of freedom of religion, freedom of expression, um, the, the the deepest purpose that they were trying to get at was to create a society where, for all people, um, freedom of conscience was sacrosanct. So. In their sense, then, the First Amendment exists to give us the right to say what we must say. But what has come, I think, to, to be interpreted, the, the way the First Amendment has come to be interpreted by most people today, 
both because of inattention, but I think also because of the nature of our society, is that people feel the First Amendment gives them the right to say whatever they want to say. Or that freedom is actually determined by the choice of blue jeans that I wear or the car that I drive, um, not the particular political philosophy that I have and the ways in which I choose to share that philosophy in the public square and try to inspire others to join me. And so I guess the way in which a capitalist society forces us to um, pay attention to conspicuous consumption uh, makes the democratic ideal of rich philosophical debate and you know, ontological exploration pretty difficult. Now, don't get me wrong. I mean, I, I, I believe it's, it's the best system we got. Was it Churchill who said, you know, democracy is the slowest, messiest, least efficient way of organizing a people, and it's the best system that we have? And, you know, if I had to choose between um, the communist experiments in Soviet Russia and ours, you know, I think ultimately ours has won out for a number of reasons, but that doesn't mean that it's in practice um, a way of organizing people that frees us to be our fullest selves. So um, I am concerned that's going to distract us past the education conversation, but I think it's a very interesting conversation um, and, and one that uh, let's we can, in the Q&A that can be brought up again if anybody would like to talk about it. Okay, so um, you talk also in the prologue about uh, social fields and grounding condition and uh, theory, is it theory U? Yeah. Okay, and I was familiar with theory X and theory Y, and I'm, now I've, I've got a new book on my list, the theory U. But that reminded me a lot of what Ken Robinson sort of talks about. He talks about changing our metaphor for learning, uh, for teaching and learning, to being more sort of uh, organic and growing and the cultivating the garden. Um, uh, do you want to talk a little bit about the social fields and grounding conditions? Sure. Um, the main thing that, that I wanted to get across is one of the things that Otto Sharma talks about in Theory U is um, seeing every, every social field, I mean, by which we think of any organization of human beings as having both visible and invisible components. And he tells a story, and I think I, I recount this in the prologue, but for anybody that hasn't read it briefly, he grew up on a farm in Germany, and Otto Scharmer did, the author of Theory U. And one day his dad brought him out to look at the field, literally the field, um, that they were tilling and asked his son to describe what he saw. And what, his, what Otto described is what all of us would describe, which is what we can literally see. So... Um, the height of the corn stalk, the presence of bugs or absence, you know, the extent to which they look healthy uh, or parched or, you know, well watered. And, and the point that his dad wanted to make uh, was that he sees all of those things too and those things matter. But what ultimately determines his success or failure as a farmer is how well he also tends to the invisible aspects of that field, the root structure, um, the quality of the soil underneath, and that really where the rubber meets the road is the fertile topsoil, is the points um, that where the visible and the invisible aspects of a field intersect and intertwine. So part of the point that I was trying to make is um, it's exactly the same way in any organizational culture, but if we just stay focused on school, 
that's, that's what happens in every school. Um, we tend to only focus on the visible aspects of school culture, which are the things that we can see, say, or do. So we focus on trophy cases. We focus on the cleanliness of bathrooms. We focus on test scores. Um, and those things are not insignificant. But what will really determine whether a school transforms itself for the long term is how well or poorly they tend to the invisible aspects of that social field. And what, um, what Sharner describes, the definition he gives for the invisible field are the inner conditions from which we all operate. So people's own hopes and fears, um, the sense of trust or lack thereof, uh, the things that we have informally agreed never to discuss. And so part of my point with the social fields bit and with the book overall is to try to, and there's a reason that the prologue and the epilogue are both titled Ways of Seeing, is it's trying to, trying to bring to the surface those invisible aspects of our work as educators so that we can tend to them as readily as we tend to the visible. Okay, so I do want us to, to shift over to Q&A, um, but we've obviously, by virtue of my interest, you know, have ignored the greater part of the book, which are the five skills. Do, do you want to give any kind of an overview there for people who might be interested in knowing more about what's in that, those, those chapters in the book? Sure. Well, the, the, the Clip Notes version, because I'm also eager to hear your questions and, and open up this conversation, but not surprising, uh, the first and most fundamental skill of a really healthy democratic learning environment is self-reflection and metacognition and developing a deeper understanding of ourselves as individuals, of our strengths, of our weaknesses, of our learning styles, of our leadership styles, um, of where we thrive and where we struggle. And, and then everything flows from that. I also talk about developing the skill of collaboration because I think a lot of times people think that all you have to do is ask people, well, what do you think we should do? And they're creating a collaborative learning environment. But really it's a deeper skill. I, I describe it as providing a, a partially painted canvas that other folks can come and help you complete. One of the responsibilities of leadership is not to simply provide a completed painting that represents your ideas and try to get everybody else to buy into it. That's uh, just as bad to offer a completely blank canvas and say, okay, what should we do? Because, and that's, I think, where a lot of schools go wrong. So it's only when a leader strategically thinks through which aspects of this painting, which is meant to represent the work that we do as a community to create a healthy learning environment, which aspects of this painting do I need to complete ahead of time to provide enough structure so that the work can be really productive? And then what are the best ways that I can create conditions that will allow the rest of the community to co-complete the painting so that it is genuinely the shared property of everybody? Um, and not for nothing, but you know, those of you that can see the cover of the book and the fact that it's a pretty colorful painting, at the beginning of each chapter, there's a picture that uh, maps a collaborative art project. Um, in which literally the cover art that you see, and this is unrelated to my book, it's just a friend of mine that happens to be an artist who does this, the cover of this uh, book was painted by hundreds of people in the same community. 
Um, and and so if you can learn more about that project um, in the book, there's a page at the beginning that talks about the images and the way in which they were created. Okay. Anything anything more on those uh, the grounding conditions or the culture? Um, yeah, I guess I, I will say briefly, a lot has to do with understanding the change process and how individuals and organizations experience transformational change. And then the last one is probably worth highlighting before we go to questions. I, 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 I say it's let come. Um, and what I mean by that is that we have to both understand what old habits and ways of seeing we must let go of in order for new habits and ways of seeing to come naturally and with urgent patience into being. You know, that part of the essential task here is to realize that transforming an organizational culture is not something that happens quickly. And yet, as a leader, we have to maintain both the distant vision and the up-close focus. So the idea of let come is, is the idea of keeping an eye on where we're going and also tending to where we are and doing both with urgent patients. Okay, so this is really uh, a fun discussion. We're going to open it up now. Uh, if you would like to take the microphone to ask a question, uh, raise your hand. Use the hand with the green up arrow icon and we'll give you the mic. If you haven't been in Illuminate before or tested your microphone, go up to Tools Audio, run the audio setup wizard just to make sure your mic is working. The other way to ask a question is to put it in the chat. And uh, I'm going to check now and see if there are any questions that I'm asked. Please feel free to raise your hand or put a question in the chat. And I'm going to look back and see if there's anything in the immediate past that we could answer or have Sam answer. Sam, in the absence of a question, let's have you call on somebody who's in the audience that you know that we might not know and help them to tell the story. Uh, well, I was already pubbiner, so Kim, maybe you could talk a little bit about what you were thinking that allowed you to create such elegant scaffolding for your school and empowering young people to really find their voice in a way that I've never seen anywhere else. So Kim, I've given you the microphone. There you go. So all you do is click on the larger microphone button at the bottom left corner of your screen to turn your mic on. Oh, uh, how's that? on? You're on. Okay. Um, nice, nice toss there, Sam. Um, I think the biggest thing for me is the belief that when there's ownership, there's greater learning, and that doesn't matter. It doesn't matter what age we are. That um, when students have agency in their learning, and that's what I was referring to earlier with the um, what's democracy as a way of learning look like. Oh, thanks, Sam. <laughs> um, that it. That's an important question, and it should impact all all aspects of school. So when kids have agency, when they have voice, um, we we call it choice and voice. 
so it, when they have opportunities to make decisions about the things that impact their lives, you get different engagement, you get different investment, and you get different commitment in what they're willing to um, put forward, whether it's in their learning or in their relationship to the community. So that was a, a key premise. Um, the school design was based on the tenets in the National Research Council's book, How People Learn, where they say there are four key elements of effective learning environments, um, which are essentially that, and no surprises to anybody that they need that a, an effective learning environment is learner-centered, knowledge-centered assessment-centered and community-centered. So we worked to develop that out. Um, I think the hardest part of that was my um, discovery that people, and it's not a big surprise either, but we couldn't start that way, that I had to create structure and find a way to have that be seen as a proxy structure that became turned, turned over in phases so that the community shaped and designed its own structures. And then you, you have the how do you continue re to renew that because schools always have new community members. So how do you bring new community members in to have them assume ownership pieces as you go? So it, it's a very organic and dynamic process. So Kim, can I have you stay on for a second? Yep. So I would have used the word generative to describe the process of kind of transparently uh, helping the next generation of people assume the understanding and leadership of a, of a process like that. What kind of stories are you telling about education to help people see your vision? Uh, we're telling lots of stories. Um, and I love Kirsten's question about how can this be for, well, she says less active choosers, um, but how can it be about not just middle class white folks? And that's where my work has focused and is focusing. Um, so the stories have to be, the best stories, most powerful stories, are the stories our kids tell themselves. So when kids are given space, and they, and they are allowed to tell their stories, that's when you see powerful impacts. Uh, on the Five Freedoms Network, there's a video that actually I believe Sam posted that comes out of New York, and it was a young woman's senior project, and it's called The Girl Like Me. And she's telling, she investigates what are the images that uh, young black women have of themselves that they're given from the culture and media around them. And so that was of meaning to her, so she investigated that. The school gave her the tools, the support, and in fact the expectations to achieve that way. Um, and what she presents is another perspective, another image of the world of her exploration of the world. I think it's critically important that this type of education not just be for the affluent, that it in fact be something that gives agency to all of our students and honors the gifts that they bring to us no matter where they're from. I hope that started to answer your question. Um, I can put a couple websites up that we have that are collecting and telling the stories. Um, and we've got a number of students working with us on that. There are also some pieces on the Five Freedoms Network where uh, you're welcome. It's an open group. Take a look at the MC2 group, and you'll see some of the tools our kids have developed. One is a rubric around authentic student voice in schools. 
um, one of their criteria is how inconvenient is that voice and is it still honored when it's inconvenient. Thank you so much, Kim. Hey, Sam, Kirsten also asked the question. Um, she says, I believe in your ideas and I'm working on the same stories in my own writing. How might we achieve collectively around this vision nationally? And I guess I'm wondering, how would you answer that question? And, and how are we doing in our current economic policy in this regard? I'm not economic, education policy. And Sam, your mic is off. I don't know if you're answering, but you've got to turn your mic back on. Yeah, thanks. It's a great question. I'm not sure. Um, it, it, actually, Steve, if you could bring up a website for people to view in this space, uh, rethinklearningnow.com. Um, I think to some degree part of what needs to happen before all of our individual efforts can be stitched together is we have to, we have to provide a partially painted canvas that helps amplify uh, individual voices and stories and connects them to each other in a way that has both grass tops and grassroots components. And so when I was the national director of the Forum for Education and Democracy, I was a part of a coalition of many organizations that launched this campaign. And, and part of the thinking behind it, and the reason it's called Rethink Learning Now, was trying to surface the fact that what we need in this country is a national culture of learning. Um, what we have is a national culture of testing. But it won't do any good to just tell people that. We have to get them to see the, the discrepancy for themselves. Um, and so this is where the individual story campaign went. Uh, we hosted a series of Capitol Hill briefing, briefings in DC that also had some policy recommendations. We sponsored up to 14 different regional meetings. And, and I would say overall we have not been very successful. And part of what I'm trying to figure out right now is why. Um, you know, I'm, I'm, I'm actually a part of a group that's doing some work in Australia right now that's going to be trying to take the, the lessons from Rethink Learning Now and doing a national campaign there um, with the same objective that Kirsten's question is trying to get at. But I mean, so I, I guess the shortest way of answering it is I'm not sure and that's the question that's most driving me personally and that I'm most eager to, to come to start to get a fuller answer to. Um, and I've forgotten what the second question is. Well, the second question was our current uh, education policy. Yeah, my most recent blog is about this. So uh, the, the, the short version, and then I'd love to hear what, what other people say. Um, they have some things right in the in the, in, the, in the broadest sense, and the way that they're going about these things is, in my opinion, wrong in almost every sense. So as one example, um, but I do write about it in greater detail on my, on my blog, um, the idea of focusing on teacher uh, quality and teacher and principal evaluations, great idea. I mean, who would disagree that right now teacher and principal evaluations are pretty worthless? Any of us that have been through would say um, that for the most part, the, the, the general approach to teacher evaluation does nothing to improve the quality of our practice as adults. 
So in that sense, great, let's focus that attention. But instead of really taking a, a cue from a country like Finland that was able to turn their own country around in less than 30 years by investing deeply in teachers, very hard to get into their programs, fully paid for by the government, one year of clinical experience, and as a result, even though they're the top um, achieving country in the world when it comes to education, they don't have any national standardized exams. All assessments are conducted locally. So instead of us being like, all right, fine, Finland's a country of 4 million, we're a country of 350, but we can figure out a way to do this. We're focusing on, on new systems where teachers' assessments are determined um, by up to 50% up to based on student test scores. And there was a piece I retweeted today where somebody was looking at here in DC, the new teacher evaluation system that has a, a faulty way of determining whether or not schools are effective. And based on this person's analysis means that of those 240 teachers that were just fired, as many as 70 were fired wrongfully because the formula was messed up. So to me, that's very indicative. It's like, what are we doing? Um, I don't know what others think. So I'm going to push back again on this one a little because I'm, I'm curious. Tony Wagner came on the show a few months back, and he talked about uh, going to local school districts and sort of spending a week building an education plan locally, and how stunningly similar those education plans were, but they were all sort of local efforts where people got together and actually participated in the same way that we talk about students and teachers being engaged when they participate. But, you know, when the parents, the administrators, the teachers, the students all got together, they created educational plans that were often really, really close to each other. So why is it we're so afraid to, to, to have the message be, this needs to be more local? Uh, well, personally, you're obviously not talking about me. You're talking about the, the larger Correct. atmosphere in the country. Um, it goes back to, the, um, to the, the line from the Hugo Black opinion. It's the title of my next book. We, we must not be afraid to be free. We are afraid to be free. Um, the, the reality is human beings do not behave like machines. We, 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 we cannot be expected to um, follow a simple, predictable, linear path. Uh, and yet there's almost the irresistible urge to impose that sort of desired simplicity and predictability on the body politic. And so, I mean, I, I have a real issue with folks that uh, demonize the people they disagree with in the ed space. I may disagree with what Arne Duncan is doing. I believe that he's doing what he believes is in the best interests of kids. Um, the problem is, I think he's trying to impose uh, a predictability and order from up top because folks are afraid of what happens if you really empower people locally. Although I should also add, um, you know, local control hasn't worked that well for us either. But again, the lesson in Finland, Finland didn't just start by saying, okay, we're going to now do all local assessments. It was only after investing deeply in the, in the skills of all of those teachers in those classrooms that they felt that they had created the conditions that would allow for a much more high quality form of local control. And so again, this is to me that, that striking the right balance between individual or local freedom 
and shared or national structure. Um, simple structures lead to complex thinking. Complex structures lead to simple thinking. Um, but there aren't enough people that I think recognize that and believe in the capacity of folks to make decisions that shape their own lives. So in those three columns I drew in my notebook, you know, freedom, complete freedom, total control, and then something in the middle. In the control column, I wrote down sort of all of the things that, that controlling organizations tend to do. And uh, it seems to me that you know, one of the things that controlling organizations do is that they work really hard to perpetuate their control. And they often uh, get the opposite result that they want. They invite the very result that they say that they're avoiding, thereby continuing to create the need for themselves. So is there, you know, I guess I'm, uh, I'm asking a question. I'm curious to see if you agree, but I'm, I'm trying to find a conclusion here. But is there a degree to which, when you have centralized control of education, it's going to be really hard to wrest that control away from the people who are used to control? Um, sorry, I'm, I'm a little distracted by what Renee just said, which I want to connect to yours, uh, which is she wants me to answer um, Larry's question about local control. What are the conditions for best local control? Go there, and then if we have time, we'll come back. Okay, um, so first of all, I just put up three words. So there's control, there's order, and there's structure. And I think part of the problem is I think control is the wrong word and the wrong goal. Um, I don't think control is what we should be after. I think obviously all of us want order and should. And I think all of us need to recognize which, or should at least wrestle with the question, which structures would create the greatest order and also reserve space for people to have some freedom to shape the work that they do or the environment in which they learn. Um, to me, the, the simplest way to describe the best recipe for local control is stop talking about control, start talking about order, and start asking which structures will best create order and leave those structures as thin and clearly defined as possible. I mean, one of the things that, that Kim did effectively at her school was they had very simple, clear structures around learning. They said, these are the 17 habits of mind and work that we want young people to develop by the time they graduate. And everything we do will be backwards mapped in order to help them acquire those skills. And we will have a few different learning opportunities. There'll be the curriculum and the classes that they take. There'll be professional internships. There'll be um, wilderness treks. Uh, and then these will be the governance structures that help us create order to the environment in which we all work. And that was it. And, and no surprise that of all the schools that I've worked with, most mission statements are very forgettable. I know MC Squared's by heart because they're so clear about what they want to do. And this is, if you're clear about what it is that you're trying to do together, then local control shifts to local order and well-defined structures. And so the mission statement of the school, which I think is really the mission statement for all of us that have taken the time on a Wednesday night to participate in this call, 
is empowering each individual with the knowledge and skills to use his or her unique voice effectively and with integrity in co-creating our common public world. That's it. Okay, so I'm, um, I think what I, I watched the movie called The Corporation, and I don't know if anybody's seen it, but it's a Canadian film about, uh, and it actually looks at the corporation from a psychological level. And, and I guess the point I was trying to make is it feels like there's a psychological component here that, yeah, at least that's a great ending, so maybe we should end, but I'm going to ask one quick question. That there's a psychological component here that when, that when there's centralized control of something, that we're not just talking about rational decisions, that we're talking about institutions that tend to perpetuate themselves and, and largely create the very circumstances that, that, um, that they say justify their existence. And is there a psychological component to our current system which is going to be very hard to overcome? Unquestionably. I, um, when I was in Australia earlier this year, I spent some time with a really remarkable journalist there who um, nobody here would would have heard of, so I won't share his name, but he, he, he starred in like the equivalent of Australian 60 Minutes, and this is somebody that had covered war zones, had, had you know, really seen the human condition in a lot of different, um, a lot of different, from a lot of different angles. And he was talking about modern society and describing it as the matrix, um, referring to the movie. And, and the reason, all right, um, I see the Australian. Uh, Jeff, I'm now blanking on his last name, uh, real kind of rugged-looking dude. He's in his 60s, wonderful, lovely man. Uh, I can't believe I'm blanking on his last name, but it's Jeff McMullen. That's exactly right. Uh, one of my heroes. And, and the reason he was comparing modern society to the matrix is because he said in the same way that, that the people in the matrix are held captive by this larger system, which in that case is literally um, aliens that are harvesting us for energy, we are also held captive by systems that we cannot see um, and that continue to, and this is what Ken Robinson talks about, that continue to inhibit our capacity and our human potential by mining our minds of their most precious materials and stripping them um, down to the bone in the same way we do for precious materials um, in the real world. And that what needs to happen is, um, is a deeper psychological uh, uh, paradigm shift that all of us have to go through individually and all of us have to help bring about um, collectively. And that's, again, it's, it's, that's why the, the prologue and the epilogue of this book are titled Ways of Seeing and of Being Seen. Okay, so we've got two minutes left. This has been really fun. Um, if you have a final question, uh, please make sure it's in the chat or raise your hand and you can ask it. Um, sort of my final question was, uh, it was a pretty um, difficult process to declare independence from Britain and to write a, a constitution. So can we expect that this is going to be a difficult process to rethink education? Yeah, I go back to the Zhou Enlai quote. I mean, you know, if, if, we see, if we see really, well, I mean, actually, in a way, uh, whether you agree or disagree with it, we're, we're seeing some pretty major shifts right now. So 
um, it's a life's work that all of us have. I mean, this, this, we will be at this question um, for all of our living days. And I actually don't say that and feel depressed by it. I mean, I would love to see uh, more immediate changes tomorrow. I would love to see most kids experience um, the type of school that MC Squared has. But, uh, but I take hope in the fact that so many of us are so committed to it. Um, it's so essential. And there's, there's also there's so much good work that's happening. So part of the challenge, back to Kirsten's point, is how do we how do we connect ourselves to each other? I think uh, forums like this, uh, Twitter, um, are actually pretty powerful ways of starting to widen one's own um, learning circle. And uh, so thank you, Steve, for giving me the privilege of participating. And thank you, uh, everybody that took time out of your uh, morning, afternoon, or evening, depending upon where you are to uh, participate in this chat. Um, somebody asked me earlier what my Twitter uh, handle is. There it is. Um, so follow me. I'll follow you. And um, please let me know what you think of the book, Good, Bad, and Ugly. OK. Thanks, Sam. Thanks so much. Uh, Tammy, if you want to put your question in the chat, uh, please leave it with Sam, or he can respond if you want. But we always like to, to finish as close to the top of the hour as we can uh, to respect everyone's time. Sam, I'm clapping for you. Thanks for coming on. Thanks to Illuminate and Learn Central uh, for allowing me to, to do the show. Please consider coming uh, to our future sessions uh, tomorrow night. Peggy Sheehy and Lucas Gillespie on the World of Warcraft and learning with the teens. Well, what a lot of fun tonight. Sam, great book for me. Sort of a, a momentous experience reading it. Really appreciate that you've taken the time to, to come on and participate. Okay, thanks, Steve. Take it easy, everybody. Thanks, everybody. Have a great night. All right.